Okay, so by 2003, is that when you first landed here? Well, I came here in 2003 for a visit, and then 2004 was when I came here to stay. How come you decided to stay? Um, it was a, it was a good escape from from the states. Just I thought maybe I'll stay here for a year, get away from that post 9/11 madness in New York. I mean, it was really crazy. You, you're a New Yorker. You probably remember. What it was well, like. I, I was you here. You were here already. Yeah, okay. I was here. So I oh. I didn't I didn't I didn't even go back for the, like a, a, about a year and a half afterwards. Well, essentially, it just it became a kind of a police state in New York. I mean, you had soldiers on the subway. I mean, it was really nice. Sandbags on the Brooklyn Bridge. It's like a scene from Godzilla. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of disaster movie. And uh, and the people had really changed a lot. I remember um, in my community in Bedford Stuyvesant, there was. Uh, Bodega, and the majority of the bodegas in the in the community were owned by Middle Eastern people, you know. And it was uh, bodega on a, on the corner. It was, it was owned by a gentleman. His name was Mohammed, and he's from Yemen. And pretty much, he's been making my tuna fish and cheese sandwiches since I was a kid, you know. So I went in there. This is post 9/11 one day, and I see he has a, a gun visibly, you know. I'm like, Yo, Mohammed, what's going on? He's got a gun in the bodega. He's carrying a gun. Well. Yeah. Or behind the counter, but yeah. visible. Like visible. Mm-hmm. you walk in there and you, you know he's packing. Yeah, and I'm like, what's up with that? He's like, he said people around here just calling me a terrorist and this kind of thing. I'm like, I couldn't believe, you know that. Yeah, I, I understand like the certain people are going to get wired up like that, mm-hmm. but I just didn't expect it from black people. You know what I mean? I, from the, from the black community, I just didn't expect them to. Was that so, disappointing to you? It was very disappointing. Mm-hmm. You know, I just didn't expect them to turn on 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 people that way. Mm-hmm. But the propaganda was powerful, you know. And, and the emotions would have been very high. It, but yeah, mm-hmm. the emotions were very high. Yeah. But for them to turn on, yeah, basically family. Yeah, you know that that really upset me. So, and the news wasn't helping. You know, we got George Bush telling us, "Oh, let's show the terrorists they didn't win by going shopping." Like, <laughs> no, this is this is not. You know, it's funny because. It, seems kind of um, nostalgic right now with what's happening, but we might get into that a little bit mm-hmm. later <laughs> compared to the, the present situation. So you, you come over to Japan. Um, we were talking a bit before <coughs> recording. You know, we're both from Brooklyn. Um, you're a couple years older than me, but you know, we know we know about the what New York used to be compared to what it is now. It's a very different city now. Um, before we get into the Japan stuff, um, have you been back to New York recently? No, I haven't been back since... Twenty uh, fourteen, yeah, yeah. So it's been about four years. Four years, yeah, yeah. It's been about three years for me. Okay, uh, but from what I hear, it's a very different city to to where we grew up in. Um, yeah, especially Brooklyn, time. which has become the hippest place in America. <laughs> Apparently, I, it was always the hippest place in America, but now everybody knows the secret is out. <laughs> but uh, well, a lot of people trying to get out when we were kids, though. So, you know? <laughs> They're no, trying to cross that bridge, you know. No, I I, yeah. I wasn't trying to get out. Yeah. At all, I was I was gonna stay for good until this nine eleven stuff went down. Mm. But um, yeah, last time I went home, I could see it's going through considerable changes, even in Bedford Stuyvesant. So, um, you know, you got a, a lot of uh, bistros and you know just just businesses that wouldn't have had an opportunity to succeed in the past. Mm. Now they do because the. Uh, the clientele that wouldn't have come to Best Eye are now living in Best Eye, so you know they they have customers. Yeah. And, well, and that's it's an interesting thing because you know um, when I was a teenager in, in the nineteen eighties, 
you know, New York was going through... It it, it recovered from the, the shock of the 70s, but it was still going through a rough time. It was a crack epidemic, AIDS. Um, it was filthy. You know, you remember it. I mean, the trains were filthy. The roads were dirty. These kinds of infrastructural improvements are great. But at what cost, you know? When you're pricing out the locals and people who can't even afford... Uh, to to have their kids live in the same street where they grew up in Brooklyn, you know, I think that there's something fundamentally wrong there, and that's for me. That's one of the things that's kept me in Japan, practically but also emotionally. I like the fact that in Japan, where where we just walk down the street to my house now, um, it's still very local, you right. know, in in a way that I feel like my neighborhood in Brooklyn, where I grew up, is no longer like that. I don't recognize it anymore. I don't recognize the people. A degree in New York that it doesn't feel that people. Uh, have that sense of community the way they used to. And maybe I'm overly negative, but um, when you went back a couple years ago, did you feel that even in Bed-Stuy? No. I didn't feel like a sense of community was lost. Mm -hmm. I felt like, actually, gentrification had banded people together more fiercely, mm -hmm. in, not, in, uh, not in opposition to to gentrification, but in making sure that it doesn't you know, completely decimate the entire community that was already in place there. So, no, nah, I didn't feel that at all. You know, I felt like a, a lot of these businesses I'm talking about, they're black-owned. You know, and when I was living in Bethesda, before I came to Japan, I was actually writing stories about Bethesda-Iverson. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I realized that, you know, gentrification is not necessarily a race issue. You know, I mean, it has racial has racial elements to it, of course. But it's about it's about green. It's about money. Mm -hmm. The first wave of gentrification to Bethesda-Iverson wasn't white; it was black people. These were affluent black people moving into Bethesda-Iverson initially, and when they came in, they didn't receive any resistance, you know, from the natives for the most part, you know, because they didn't stand out, you know. But I was meeting these people from in the block association because I used to go to block association meetings and do presentations about neighborhood beautification, this type of thing. So I was meeting the people who were attending these meetings, and these new homeowners buying these brownstones, renovating these brownstones, um, they were black. And this would, this was in the in the early nineties. This was two thousands. Oh, okay, more yeah. recent then. Yeah, yeah this is two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two. You know, so. Actually, I had started a, a home beautification business. This was my first business I started at that time. So I was actually, these were my clients, mm -hmm. and, the, and the vast majority of them were black. So to me, I, I, I learned something about gentrification at that point. It's very was. interesting that, 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 that <clears throat> you know, for me, from, from a distance, because I do not go back to New York um, at all these days, um, I, I'm, I've always been uh, very wary of the race angle that, that there's a bit of a whitewashing going on, you know. But from what you're saying, it's that's still only part of the, the situation. It's definitely that's there, but there's also it's really just a money and a class issue. The same thing for Green Clinton Hill. The first mm -hmm. wave of that gentrification was black. Mm -hmm. You know, these were uh, upwardly mobile black people mm -hmm. moving to a, a, a neighborhood that mm -hmm. was black. Mm -hmm. You know, that they can be part of that was open, uh, upwardly mobile, mobile black community before. The, the second wave comes. Right. The second wave is usually um, more, right. you know, diverse. Yeah. But uh, the first wave was generally black. It's interesting. You, you were saying before we started recording that, you know, New York's always uh, 
had uh, these cycles and changes and that this is just you know sometimes I, I honestly do even though I've been gone for two decades now I, I sometimes look at New York and feel full of despair this is not the city I, I, I loved and I don't want to go back there um, but what you had mentioned was that, look, you know, th- these changes are constant in New York's history, and this is just one particular phase right now. It's not like this is the end point where it's going to be this sort of uh, craft beer bar and, like, uh, <laughs> Scandinavian soap shop uh, sort of situation forever. One of my favorite filmmakers is Woody Allen, and uh, Woody Allen's from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So I was watching this documentary about Woody Allen recently. Mm-hmm. He goes back to his home in Brooklyn with mm-hmm. uh, Flatbush uh, mm-hmm. Avenue D, I think it is, mm-hmm. and, like, Church Avenue, Farragut, you know, right, 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 where I grew up, yeah. And yeah. Uh, he's like, you know, this. Year, <laughs> he's talking about the neighborhood the way we're talking about yeah. the neighborhood now. So it's there's always been this kind of transition in a neighborhood mm-hmm. from 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 one way to another way, and mm-hmm. you know, I, this is a constant thing in New York. It happens fast mm-hmm. and it happens conspicuously. So yeah, people who were from a previous generation or two, they're going to notice the differences. I mean, in my lifetime, Bethesda-Iverson has gone through a complete overhaul, almost. You know, but when I when I when I when I was a child, I went to a school in Bethesda-Iverson. This is the seventies, and uh, this was a part of the Pan African Black Power Movement in the seventies. And this was in the middle of Bethesda-Iverson, and um, at that time, this was seriously, seriously the the image of the hood, the one you were trying to describe earlier. In, in a way that wasn't very, I didn't see it that way. It was dirty and grimy. I saw it. It was beautiful. I loved it. I didn't feel like I need to get away from this. I was like, this is home. I didn't know anything else. I mean, I didn't have anything to compare it to. So to me, this was just the way it is. Graffiti. My brother's graffiti artist, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bash graffiti. My brother's one of. He was a famous graffiti artist. You know, I mean, it's what he did. He go out and bomb trains, and you know, so I, I, I was, I was part of that. You know, as opposed to looking at it, saying, oh, you know, and and and, and remarking upon it. I was part of it. So um, growing up amid that, you know. Compared that what I grew up into the Bedford Stuyvesant that there, that's there now it's 180. Wow, yeah, it's 180 degrees. So, do you think that um, do you think that the changes that we've seen in um, in New York and the rather precarious situation of the country as a whole right now is that something that as an expat, someone who's lived abroad now for 15 years, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, do you feel like it's a, America is a place that you can return to um, and live comfortably? That's part one. And, and part two, is New York exempt from that because New York is New York City? It used to be exempt from that. I used to feel like there was America and then there was New York. And New York was like a, another country almost. But... I don't know if that's still the case. I feel like uh, New York has lost a lot of its flavor, a lot of its uh, color. You know, I think that um, when I was growing up, each community had a different flavor. It had a unique, a uniqueness to it. Now you go there, and every community has the Wayne Reed and the Starbucks, and yeah. it's just you know, it's just very 
Yeah. And I don't, I'm not, I don't pick up on the, the distinctiveness. I can't distinguish between Soho and the village very easily. <laughs> you know, I think...
let's let's get into um, a little bit then uh, about your own personal background. So you were born in 1967. Six. 66, okay, mm. in Brooklyn. Mm. Grew up in Bed-Stuy. Um, and Crown Heights. And Crown Heights, okay. And how big is your family? Uh, three brothers, four... Well, one, two, three. <laughs> three brothers, two sisters. Three brothers and two sisters, yeah. so six. And years. a bunch of steps. Okay, okay. So you're a big family. Yeah, yeah. big family. Are you the youngest? I'm not in the middle. You're in the middle. Yeah. Okay. And where are they all now? They're all over the place. Yeah. Got California and uh, South, and some are still in New York. So. And where were, you, were your parents from the South? My mother's from the South. My yeah. father's from Philly. Okay. Yeah. And they met in New York? They met in New York. Okay. You ever go down South before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I lived in Savannah for a year. Savannah? Yeah, my mother's from Savannah. Yeah, that's deep Georgia. south. That's deep south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she's a country girl. <laughs> that's deep south. You know, yeah. I grew up on grits and hammocks and stuff. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My mom's a country girl. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. And uh, your family, your extended, you know, your siblings, your step siblings, your mom, uh, any of them ever come over to visit you in Japan? No. My niece came. Yeah? My niece came. Yeah. She came for a week or two, and that was nice. <laughs> Most of them, no. They're like, no. 13, 14 hours, that ain't going to happen. It's a long trip. <laughs> it's a long, it's a long trip. trip. See, if you're, not, long if you're not a regular traveler, it's a long trip. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my mother, she's actually kind of too old to do that. Yeah. Yeah. How but, old's uh, your mother now? Don't get me lying. She's up there. Approaching 80. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay, so you're growing up in New York. You graduated from high school um, in the 80s. Right. And what'd you do? What'd you do after high school? Uh, I went to the service, so I, I did. Uh, I joined the army, and I was uh, went down to Fort Jackson for basic training, and Fort Gordon down in Georgia for advanced training. It was reserved though; I needed money for school, and uh, I got sucked in by one of those "Be All You Can Be" campaigns. You know, I was like, "Hey, I can use some money for university. I need some adventure. I need to see, you felt see that, the yeah? world." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. But for tw- for twenty years, I could ignore the commercial. Went in one ear, came out the other. Then one year, it just went in one ear and didn't come out. You know, the thing I knew, I was down at the recruiter's office going, you know, sign a, oh, a dozen no, contracts, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and a few weeks later, I was. Marching, doing cadences, and the whole nine. But that was a great experience. I kind of wrote about it a, a bunch, a lot about it in my book, mm-hmm. my first book. And uh, you know, it, it was my first time really being away from home mm-hmm. and away from you know, away f- where I had full freedom and authority over myself. Well, as much as the army allows you to have. Right. And um, how many years were you in? Eight, but it was reserved. Okay. So you know, you go to summer, um, go to go two weeks in the summer, couple weeks, uh, and yeah, once a month and okay. two weeks in the summer. Okay, I wish I had stayed in though because yeah. uh, then I wouldn't have to ask my friend to bring me on Atsugi base. <laughs> I you pick up some American groceries, right? Yeah, you yeah. Know, I should have stuck in it, but you know, it around the time that I had the option of um, re-enlisting, this was around Desert Storm time. I was like, no, I think I'm going to uh, yeah, right. opt out. <laughs> You, you would know. have been in your mid tw- mid to late twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would have been over there in, mm-hmm. in, in Kuwait, and that wasn't no. on my agenda. Right. So, and well, that's interesting. I, I want to ask you that because um, you know, having spoken to you before, followed your writings uh, for many years now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, we we are fairly similar in our political 
positions. We don't need to get too deep into that. But uh, it's interesting that you were in the service for that long, um, having read a lot of what you've written about the United States and your view of what the United States government does and the way they use our military. As a quasi-veteran, uh, how do you feel about the rather incredibly um, drastic change in, in, in the militaristic tone of, of, of American society as it is right now. And by that I mean like, you know, when we were growing up, it was still post-Vietnam. Right. And the country was quite fractured. And now we're in a point where it's become almost um, uh, universal, this this worshipping of the military in the United States. I can't watch. I'm a big baseball fan. I watch every Yankee game. And they pretty much um, honor the military at every single home baseball game. And it's it's profoundly disturbing to me. I mean, uh, this is something that I cannot understand, and, and I've tried to explain this to non-Americans. And they're like, why are they honoring the military at every baseball game? Um, I think this has shifted. It's become much more extreme since 9-11, like you were talking about. So as someone who has been in the service, but also now been abroad and written quite critically, how do you balance those two positions? Um, that was then and this is now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even when I was in the military, even when I was in the military, I wasn't, um, <clears throat> gun ho. You know, I wasn't, I didn't join for John Wayne purposes. Yeah. And like I said, I joined specifically to, to get money for school, hmm. you know, and I did exactly that. Went back home after my initial training, used that money and and enrolled in university. Mm-hmm. So it, it it was, you know, I I did what they asked me to do. They did what they promised to do. And that was it. Contract was fulfilled as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't about any type of patriotism or nationalism mm-hmm. or was job. me getting sucked in by any of the propaganda yeah. of be all you can be. It was... Yeah. It was, and they're, and they're aware of that when they put those types of commercials together, mm-hmm. you know, because when they're showing you these images of heroism, mm-hmm. they're also talking about college. <laughs> you know, they know they're doing They know that we're going to find your trigger. What's your trigger? Yeah. My trigger was college. Right. You know, because I was poor. I didn't have any money for university. I didn't have any scholarships. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, ex- you know, outstanding mm-hmm. in, in high school. We were going to get this money to go to university. So that's how they got me. So. By the time I was out of the army, I didn't have any allegiance to the the army or mm-hmm. to the U.S. government, anything like that. You know, I call it like I see it. American government has some good points and some bad points, and I, you know, I'm critical of the the bad, and I'm I praise the good. That's interesting to what you're saying, you know, because um, you know you talk to a lot of Americans abroad, and um, you know, living abroad changes you. You know, it changes the way you look at your, yourself and the way you look at your own country. And I know for me, having been gone for more than 20 years now, I, I have a, a much clearer understanding of what America is about. And that's not just critical. I mean, I know I say a lot of critical things in conversation and even on the show, but um, but the good parts as well. You know, um, you miss certain things. I miss the, the, the dynamism and the, and the internationalism of New York, especially, but even all of America. You mm-hmm. know, you meet people from everywhere. And, and that's something that um, I think is very special in the U.S. It's, it's probably our, our saving grace. It's what will keep us going in the midst of this insanity that's, <laughs> that's happening right now. Until Trump bars everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> By which point, we'll all just be, you know, moving to China. So, Pretty much. <laughs> you know. Um, um, we're getting into Asia then. So, uh, okay, so you, you know, you're a really interesting um, uh, youth 
you, you go to high school, you, you go into the service, you go to college, you're in New York, you're working in various things, you're in a community, uh, you're writing, um, and then suddenly you decide to come over to Japan for a visit, visit your friend who's in the service, right? No. No, your friend, not your friend was not in the service. Okay, mm-hmm. and this was 2002? Three. So what was it that made you want to stay? Or to come back, I should say. Um, well, come on. You spend, you spend 10 days in Japan, you're ready to come back too, right? <laughs> so I, I spent 10 days in Japan. I had a time. I had a wonderful time. I saw some things that... I, before coming to Japan, I had gone abroad twice. I had gone to Mon- Montreal, and I had gone to St. Lucia. Oh, no. I had gone to Haiti, too. Haiti? So I spent three weeks in Haiti. I had spent uh, two weeks in St. Lucia and two days in Montreal. <laughs> and um, I, I think uh, St. Lucia is kind of a... You don't even need a passport to go to St. Lucia or Canada at that time. And Haiti was the first time I needed a passport. And it was the first time I was in a entirely different country, you know, in, in every sense of the word. I mean, St. Lucia was kind of like a playground, kind of. You know how America has made the Caribbean, a lot yeah, of the Caribbean yeah, islands yeah. into. Yeah. So it wasn't really like the, I mean, I, I did, because I was there with a St. Lucian, mm-hmm. I did get a lot of the Native mm-hmm. experience, and that was great. But Haiti was the first time I was really like, okay, so there's there, there are other, there's another, you know, there's a, there's a not America world out there. And um, it, it rocked my world. Haiti rocked my world, and that made me open to the idea of living abroad because I had gone there to see, to spend time with a, um, a friend of mine who was living there, and I was like, "You live in Haiti, you know?" Because all the propaganda about Haiti that you get in the states, it just sounds like the most miserable place in the sure. planet. Yeah. You're so lucky you're American. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Pretty much every place is described like that. That you feel like I'm lucky to be American. <laughs> so, but, but then when you go to Haiti, then it's like, you know. It's a black country, you know, and kind of like you just described America is the experience I had in Haiti. I didn't realize how American I was until I went to Haiti, you know, and how Americanized I was until I went to Haiti. Because, you know, when you see a black pilot in the airplane, I didn't realize I would be uncomfortable with that. You know, it's like... You were uncomfortable with seeing a black pilot. I was uncomfortable seeing black people in, in positions of power all over the place. Why did that make you uncomfortable? Because I'm accustomed to seeing white. You know, that's the American way. America is white equal power, white equal authority, white equals, uh, you know, just the the qualified. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, it's not like you say it. But you feel it because every time you turn on television, that's what you see. Every this time you is, turn this has been ingrained in non-white people for it's, centuries in the United States. It's embedded in you. Right. I mean, I grew right. up in the Black Power movement. Yeah. How could I feel that way? It yeah. was a shock to me. Right. It was a shock to me. Black is beautiful. I grew up feeling. But you, you realize you realize you still had that I, somewhat inside. You. I had a fear of black people inside of me. I realized in Haiti. I said, "Wow, I, I got some really disturbing things going on inside of me that I would have never." Recognized if I had not left the state. So it took it took you um, 
it took picking up and leaving the country and going not just to another country, but a country as drastically different as Haiti, a different language and different history. Um, at the time, I mean, we, I mean, I only learned this many years later. We don't learn this in school in the United States. Haiti was the first independent black country. I knew it before I went yeah. there, but I didn't know it, know it. Right. When I went and, there. And know what that really meant. Right. Yeah. I didn't know what it really yeah. meant until yeah. I went there. I went there. Actually, I went there at the time. It was their bicentennial. <laughs> so they they were celebrating this thing. And I'm, I'm at this uh, parade, like a parade. You know, and you saw these, like, floats coming down the, the, the avenue and they see these colonial these figures in colonial garb you know up atop these floats and I was like you know it kind of felt like Fifth Avenue and I was like oh no not here too but then I see the people on the floats are black you know I'm like huh and I realized these are, this is not them praising their European colonial emperor you know queen this is a you know Toussaint Adouverture and the other people who were the leaders of the, the Haitian Revolution against the French. I was in tears it, just watching this thing. I was like, this is a whole different dynamic for me. I've never had so much pride in being black in my entire life until I went to Haiti. How old were you when you did? When this? I went to Haiti, I was this was two thousand two. But you already you're already in your thirties. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, I, I'm sure you remember this bit that Richard Pryor did about Africa, his yeah. trip to go in Africa and being like, "Wait, the pilot's black. Yeah. The, the police, the police chief's black." I had the same <laughs> you know? exact experience. What's going on here? E- and even having heard that joke and loved yeah. that joke, yeah. it didn't hit me like mm. this is a real thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real. It was real. And good. I yeah. found that it. And while I was in Haiti, it was better if I didn't open my mouth. Mm-hmm. Because as long as I didn't open my mouth, I was Haitian. As soon as I opened my mouth, you know, suddenly I was a tourist. Not a tourist, but a Yankee. a foreigner. Because yeah. they don't have tourists there. That's mm-hmm. the other thing. They're not, you know, it, it, the tourist is rare. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and very conspicuous. Most of the foreigners who come there, they're probably part of some missionaries or some, some you know, UNICEF kind of people or business people who are, you know, in and out. So there's no like just walking around kind of you know, which is great because and bad it was, it was you know, it has its good points and its bad points, but it used to be a tourist attraction. Wasn't you know? in my Haiti in the seventies? Um, right, had, had a lot of it's quite a hip place actually. I think um, the Stones recorded an album there or whatever. You it know. used to be a lot of different things. Yeah. Going through a lot of transitions over over before the years. Duvalier pretty much just. Right. Completely looted the entire country, right? right. You had the, the Papa Doc and Baby Doc, yeah. and, and but um, those those hotels and resorts that they built during those times, mm-hmm. they're still there, mm. but they're empty. Uh-huh. So when I, we were bouncing around the, the country, mm. we were staying in these places, mm. you know, these vast, yeah, you know, resorts. They were totally empty. So all the service was was me. Wow, you know, it was funny. So I'm sitting out there in an empty restaurant area, being served by you know four or five waiters, right? And um, they have a television there, has you know CNN and whatnot. And then you know the staff, they're accustomed to watching. This was something that really um, experienced that really defining experience while I was there. I was watching, they were watching, I was watching CNN, and then at one point, I think it was like, you know, a certain time, like maybe exactly at 3 o'clock or exactly at 4 o'clock, one of the staff came over and changed the channel to BET. 
And this is when, you know... Um, <laughs> he changed it. They had B- <laughs> Sorry, they had BET. They had cable. They had BET. They had okay. a, the the right. hotel has satellite. Okay. These people probably don't have a, that type of thing at their home. Yeah. But the hotel, here, yeah. the staff knew that this is our chance to watch American TV. Wow. And not just American TV, yeah. but black people. Hmm. Black Americans on TV. So they were watching... Um, um, one of those BET, BET rap shows or you know hip hop shows yeah. and whatnot, and these guys, like you said, they can't speak English, mm. but they knew hip hop. So mm-hmm. even though when I spoke to them, it was all choppy choppy. Yeah. When they were reciting the lyrics, it was like motherfucking bitches and niggas and motherfucking and they could do all the mannerisms, everything. This was shocking to me. I was like, this is what we're exporting. So <laughs> it, it, it was a it was a this was a culture shock. Yeah, you know that that's that somebody who can't even speak English mm. connects wow. with, with us. Musically, yeah, and well, don't you think it's interesting because you 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 go around you go around the globe, and um, whether it's a, a black country, Haiti, West Africa, South Africa, or someplace in Southeast Asia, a lot of the young people are imitating hip hop culture for what it represents. For the being a street culture, for being anti-establishment. Well, this was back then. I'm talking about now. Yeah. Hip hop is long gone. I yeah. mean, it's pop. Yeah. Hip hop is pop. Yeah. I don't even think of hip hop as a separate thing. Mm. It's pop. So, mm. whatever happens, happens now. At mm. this point, I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's not. It's popular music now. Mm. You know, you, we have no. It's we already lost it. We, I mean, if there's some artists that are still, mm. you know holding on to the last remnants of it kind of mm. like you know there's still some rock people who will and jazz people who mm. are holding on to the last mm. you know but for the most part it's pop now mm. you know it's fusioned out it's fusioned into sure. some mm. some some you know some you still, new you still listen to some of the new stuff I listen to a lot of old stuff. Yeah, it was old stuff yeah. <laughs> I mean, occasionally something will come out that'll make me feel reminiscent of the days when this was a regular thing. Right. You know, <clears throat> I mean, 444 with Jay Z came out 444, and um, there's a few other artists that mm. you know came out. It's like, oh, oh, oh. Mm. you know, they. But it's just it's nostalgic now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's exceptional when it happens now, as opposed to the, the norm. Things like to hang outside. Cause my name's Andre Crabtree. I got more than no one in particular. They say the baddest. I am tonight. All that words I seldom heard with such dignity and bite. All the poets and the part-time singers always hang inside. Live music from a band plays a song called Soul Sacrificide. The songs are year long and have been playing for months when they walked into the place. No one seemed to care, an introverted this is it. look on most of their faces. Up on the mic, repeating two words. This woman he had never noticed before he lost himself in the articulated manner in which he said them. These two words, a little bit behind the beat, I mean just enough to turn you on. 
So let's. So you you, you travel. You, you go abroad. You're in your thirties. You come over to Japan. Decide to stay. You like what you see, um, and you settle in the Kanto area, uh, not in Yokohama to start with. You start living. I started in Saitama. In Saitama. Yeah. Okay. First three years I lived in Saitama, and um, <laughs> you know I was having a, a hell of a time, and a friend told me, you know. The, the people in Yokohama are more accustomed to to 
fond of being in their presence. So probably you have a much different experience. Yes. Oh, really? So I came to Yokohama. It's no different, but <laughs> <laughs> but there were no, there were more foreigners. That's for mm-hmm. sure. But the Japanese were no different. It was same old same old nonsense. And what were you doing when you came over? I was working for a Kaiwa. Mm-hmm. You know, I came over here. It was the easiest job to get. Mm-hmm. You know, after I decided I wanted to come back, I was like, well, my friend told me, who, the one who was living here, he said, you should you know, just apply to one of a Kaiwas. They all, they take anybody, really. If you speak English, you qualify and you have a degree. I had both of those. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I joined the a Kaiwa, came over here, and uh, they set you up in the apartment and everything. And Because you introduced yourself as... An American from New York, do the Japanese see you as an American? Do they see you as a black guy? Or do they just see you as a gaijin? Who's they? A Japanese. You gotta break down they a little bit, yeah. too. I mean, the ones who, who don't know me and will never get to know me, I'm just Kokuji. Right? Mm-hmm. Just black. Whatever Kokuji means to that individual, as opposed to the people who get to know me. And the people who get to know me, essentially, at, at, initially, I'm Kokuji. And then I give them more information to work with. And the more information I give them, the more they can dislodge the, the propaganda crap that they already got inside of them. And then start, you know, replacing it with facts. You know, but the people who never know me, I'm, I'm going to be whatever's in that dossier mm-hmm. of their brains. Filed, whatever's filed under go, Kokuji is what I am. How did... How did that make you feel when you first got here? Same in America. Yeah. Yeah. You felt that there was not any difference. And well, the biggest difference is here it's it's acceptable and almost forgivable, whereas in America it's not. But um, it's the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that um, and I think that I mean, for example, when I when I was back in the states, uh, a lot of, a lot of the, the jobs I had. Where I was a token in the office, you know, one of the few black people in the office. So, and a lot of the people, this is the early gentrification, mid gentrification, they weren't from New York. They were coming from yeah. around the country, you know, Indiana and other places like your father, you know, whereas they don't have much, you know, no, doesn't matter Cosby Show or other <laughs> shit that's all over the fucking me, doesn't matter. <laughs> they don't know any black people personally, so yeah. they feel like they can come to you and say, yeah. So you guys like basketball, don't you? You know, and it's like, it's, huh? You know, and you feel like you ought to know better. You're a fucking American. You, yeah, sorry. Yeah. You ought to know better. And, you know, they just did it. Mm. So it's the same thing in America. Mm. It, didn't, it didn't change drastically. It's just that here they have even less mm. information. But don't you feel like I, I always felt like um, I, I actually had more, and I still do, I have more uh, patience with Japanese people with those questions and those comments because it is so sheltered here. That's what I meant. Forgive yeah, me. But know, in America, I, I feel like how at, really at this point you could say such things or think such things is almost unfathomable. You would think. You, you, you would think it's unfathomable, but it's fa- it's very fathomable. <laughs> it's, very, it's very fathomable. Mm. I'm saying it right. Yeah. So, so we're, we're drinking here. Yeah. We had but, a couple uh, beers. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's 
trust me, it's fathomable. <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't shock me. It used to shock me. Mm. It used to shock. And when I first started in working in corporate America, it shocked me. But after a couple of years there, it didn't shock me anymore. Mm. Because there's a lot of diversity in it. There's a lot of people who have a great deal of exposure to a diversity of people. So they they know, you know, even if they're not sure... They they know how to approach people sensitively and cautiously and mm. sometimes over gingerly, you know. But um, yeah, there were some people from the Midwest or from other corners of the of the states, and they come there just totally oblivious to any type of mm. you know, they just completely like entitled and mm. privileged and insensitive and just yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this doesn't come off, does it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't go that far, but you yeah. know, they want to touch your hair and yeah, stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. It's like, don't touch me. Yeah, see, I, I, I mean, obviously, having not had that experience, I, mean, I can't even imagine how it's creepy. How, how it's creepy. Yeah, yeah. It's really creepy because this part of you well. feels like yeah. you know better than this, yeah, don't you? You yeah. gotta know better than yeah. this. But you have to say, you have to tell yourself that um, not only um, were they was there a lack of exposure wherever they came from? Mm. But there wasn't. There was an indoctrination going on too that we are different from them, mm. and that's basically the same indoctrination that Japanese are receiving. We are different from other people. Well, it's interesting you use the word indoctrination because I, I was um, very interested when I started to to learn that that after World War II, the Jap- Japan had not had this racial history. Obviously, the United States. And yet, after the occupation, they sort of imported a lot of the American racial attitudes and stereotypes towards non-white people that they had not had previously. Because you, you think about that now, and you think, like, well, why, why does a Japanese person say to you, oh, well, you know, if I see a tall black guy on a train at night, I'm afraid. So why would you possibly think that? You have no context to think that at all. It makes no sense. Clearly, they've been getting this from whether it's from movies or from media or from whatever. You know, they've incorporated this sort of very stereotypical approach towards racial attitudes that we have in the U.S. That was always fascinating to me when I saw this, when I heard this from Japanese people, and they would say these things. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of America's biggest exports, I think. I mean, because it, it's the the message is exported via movies and. All kinds of things, you know. American movies are the most popular movies in the world. So mm-hmm. of course, you know, if if we are not careful with the kind of images we put in movies, that um, a lot of it's gonna infect the thinking and mindset of people around the world. And well, it, and done, it has. In, in your in your work in Japan, um, one thing I've always been very impressed with your work is that you make a very distinct effort to talk about these issues, to explain them. In knowing that it is uncomfortable for a lot of the Japanese audience or your students, the people who come to your lectures, um, but you make an effort to explain, to teach them that this is not the right way to approach it and there's a certain way we can talk about these issues. How did you come to the point where you were ready to do that or you felt like it was something that you had to do? Because it could be easy to just coast through it and live your life in Japan. You know, we know a lot of people. It's not easy to you coast know. through. If it was easy to coast yeah. through, I probably wouldn't do it. Yeah. It's, it's impossible to coast through. Mm-hmm. Because it, as a conspicuous foreigner, and I don't know if 
Coco Jean enhances that experience or not, but being a black person here, but as a conspicuous foreigner here, um, a, a conspicuous non-Japanese person here, mm-hmm. you're going to be subject to a certain amount of, of presumptions being asserted at you on a daily basis. You know, so it's not like you can just surf, you know, cruise through your life here without, you know, your, your peace of mind, your your general joy in life, your joy de vie is going to be assaulted randomly by people on a regular basis. And the onus becomes on you to you know, keep my joy. Don't let anybody steal my joy. This kind of bullshit Oprah-isms. <laughs> you know, you gotta you gotta live that shit here just to, mm-hmm. to, to not, you know, you're walking down the street, you mind your business, you're having a good time listening, you know. And then somebody, you know, walking towards you, notice that you're not Japanese and goes off the sidewalk, makes a big freaking detour around you to get back, you know. Mm-hmm. You can ignore that. You can ignore that. But it's difficult. You, can, you know, okay, she mm-hmm. doesn't know any better. But you just can't, you know, like it, like, like it didn't happen. That's the, the people capable of doing that, I really admire them. I'm not one of them. I can do that. You can do that? You can, can ignore somebody behaving that way? Yeah. On a regular basis? You know why? You know why I, I can't can... do it because, yeah. well, correction. Yeah. I can do it, but in, a, in order to do it, I would have to reduce that person's humanity to something I can't live with. Mm. You know, it's like the children. I can't look at Japanese people as children. Or, you know, children are irresponsible. A child does that, I have no problem with it. Mm-hmm. I can't think of adults as children. I can't think of a race or a, a country of people as infantile. I mean, that to me is me looking down on them. I would have to condescend to them in order to tolerate them. Mm-hmm. And I think in that way, that's kind of racist to do that. To mm-hmm. They don't know any better. How can you tell it? You know what? That's interesting. You said that because I, I've had to, and, and you've written about this extensively. You're an entire yeah. book about this, but yeah. you're an entire book about basically coming to, to terms with your own views of racial attitudes when you go abroad. Um, I've had to do that myself. Exactly what you just said. I, I've found that I've condescended in my own mind. Oh, well, you know, they don't know any better. They are like children, yeah. you know, which is a, which is an incredibly. Horrific thing to Horrific. think, you know. I can't treat people that way. Yeah, I say I just. But I, I think I, I, no I, correction. I can, but I refuse. I to. do it for. I think. I think when I when I when I really look deep, I do it for my own selfish reasons. Is that because deep down, I think I want to be left alone. One of the things I like in Japan is that I can turn off when I don't speak Japanese. If I if I pretend I don't speak Japanese, if I'm coming home, I've had a bad day, and I go into a bar just to have a drink, beer. And I pretend I can't speak a word of Japanese. You are living in a complete bubble as that foreigner, you know. And I, I like that. I personally like that. I know for a lot of people that come, they go, they have a year in Japan. They go to Fuji. They go to Kyoto. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's beautiful. I could never live here. I couldn't be the outsider for my rest of my life. For me personally, I don't, I don't give a shit. I, I'm totally fine with that. Um, probably just because I like to just be in my own bubble. You know, I I don't really look at it in terms of in the broader you know the broader sort of like you know social issues about it. Right. Um, and the, but the other difference is this is that and I know you've heard this before and it drives me nuts when you get a certain kind of American who comes over to Japan and experiences being called the gaijin, the foreigner, the outsider, and they'll say, "Well, you know, now I know what it's like to be a black guy in America," and I'm like, "You don't know." 
anything about what it means to live black in America because the racism you experience in Japan, okay, say you couldn't rent an apartment or you got, you know, some, uh, your girlfriend's parents didn't like you because you were a foreigner. That is racism and it's a painful experience. But we as Americans, we don't have a history of being oppressed. We don't have a history of being attacked of being institutionally oppressed, of being lynched in Japan by Japanese people. So no, you do not know what it means. It's not the same thing. I agree and disagree. Yeah? <laughs> I, 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 I agree that it's not the same. Yeah. It's not the same. But is it a taste of it? Yes, it is a taste of it. I think that a lot of people who... I think a lot of people in America would benefit from having that type of experience. Just a little taste of it probably yeah. would be enough for most people yeah. to realize if this is a little taste of it, oh my fucking God, yeah. I can do better. We can do better. But they don't really have the, I think most people don't have the incentive to do better. They, they're aware that there's a problem yeah. that, that, that's attached to, to, to racialized labeling, to, 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 to racialism and, and racism. Yeah. They realize it's a problem. Yeah. But they don't have the incentive to do what each and every one of us can do to make it a better situation, to improve their situation. Because they are not at the butt end, the business end of, you know, the, the fuzzy end of the lollipop. They're not getting it. Mm. So they, they don't have that, that you know, that there's, there's no fire under under their bums mm. to, 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 to do everything within their power to try to change the situation. So here... When, when, I hate words like white and black, but when white people experience the, the, the mild level of discrimination some of them experience here, sometimes it's enough hmm. for them to realize, wow, so this is what Black Lives Matter was talking about on, on the most minute level, mm -hmm. on, the, on the most basic level, yeah. just the, you know, housing and employment and, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not even the Actually, that's not even the basic level. That's a severe level. That's pretty, pretty that's major. Pretty, that's a major <laughs> it's level. Major, and, yeah. you know, I, I had white friends here who told who told me that they experienced not being rejected from an apartment because they were white yeah. or because they were not Japanese. Yeah. And well, I remember the first time that happened to me. They rationalized it. The first time that happened to me, I didn't know how to react. I, I literally didn't know how to react. I was like, wait a second. I've been rejected from an apartment because I'm American? Or is it? Is that the only reason? This goes back to the the infantile thing. It was pretty crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it was kind of wait. What? Like, it's how do you? It's it's, it's beyond humiliation, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, you you feel unclean. Yeah, you feel like oh maybe maybe I am. Yeah, maybe in this place I'm not worthy. I, it was a very strange. Emo it was a, it was an emotion of someone who had never experienced racism at home. Like you just said, because I never did that. I mean, I, I as we talked about, I'm, I'm, I'm mixed, you know, but I grew up in, in Brooklyn where everybody's kind of, you know, and I didn't have to deal with it. The cops never bothered me, you know. But don't get me wrong. It's yeah. not like back in New York, I was, mm. you know, I experienced this type of stuff much more here mm. than back in the States. Mm. I mean, back in the States, it, it was, um, it was rare. It was rare. Mm. You know, because I grew up in a black community, so it's never going to happen there. Right, right. And when I finally did venture out into the the greater community, mm. it was uh, it was still rare mm. because I think that 
white people back in New York are, are particularly sophisticated for the most part, and the ones who weren't, you know, I could educate them with confidence, you know, and with the, the you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was it was a simple thing. Whereas here, you you're dealing with. Um, you're dealing with another dynamic that that I think that most people are just not prepared for, and and like what you said talk about when you were earlier you were talking about or what we were talking about in infantilizing infantilizing people. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with doing that, beyond the obvious, is it's going to impact you too. It's gonna it's gonna do as much damage to you as. I don't know. I think that when when you, as a, as a human being, when you begin to view another group of human beings as um, beneath you or lower than you or congenitally immature, it's 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 going to have a it's going to have a negative impact on you. You know, it's a little bit of your soul is being. Immolated, you know, it's, you're destroying a little bit of yourself in in that process. So I would not recommend that to anyone. But actually, that's one of the 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 the, the one of the ways that people here cope. This is a coping mechanism that a lot of people use here by using. I, I listen to the language people use, and they're like, oh, they just don't know any better. They, 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 I'm like, they're friggin' adults. They're human beings. Mm-hmm. You're a human being. I, I feel like I, if I communicate directly with a human being, mm-hmm. they're going to get it. So yeah, that, that's my yeah. motivation. Well, that, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's, that's how because, I do it. Um, you know, we're, we're sitting here in my in my house um, in a very local neighborhood in, in, in Yokohama where there are uh, less than a half a dozen non-Japanese um I should say non-Asian, sorry, non-Asian foreigners living in this neighborhood. And when we moved here, I was a little bit, you know, uncertain about it. I was like, you know, I'm going to, these people are not going to have any context to frame of reference to understand me, to talk to me. What about the kids? My kids were mixed. Um, And we've experienced nothing but good, warm vibes from everyone in the neighborhood. And even when there's been times when I felt like, you know, that old guy seems like he's a gaijin hater <laughs> you know you know the type he kind of seems like he's the kind of old guy who just doesn't like foreigners it's fine look we have him in every country you know and even that guy though when i meet him on the street smiles and bows to me says good morning and i think to myself you know what if that guy hates foreigners he's still really polite <laughs> and he's not harassing me and he's not harassing my children and I'm free to live in this neighborhood. And so my duty as, a, as, as someone who's decided to settle in this country and settle in a very local neighborhood is I go to the local meetings. I go to the, the festivals. I talk to the people. I, I show them, hey, you know, I'm a foreigner, but I learn Japanese. I know how to divide my garbage. I know how to wait at the red light. I can follow your customs. You know, I'm not scary. And... And they've accepted me. And now what's made me really happy is that, and it's, it's, it's small, it's very, very small, but my kids are now getting older and their friends in the neighborhood have now been coming to our house for five years. And those kids are growing up knowing a non-Japanese person. 
they know a Western person who speaks their language and they see the inside of our home is the same as theirs, you know, and those kids will be more comfortable hanging around non-Japanese people. And I feel like if, if that's the minimum thing that I can do in my neighborhood, I feel pretty happy about that because it makes a difference. It does make a difference. It's slow, but it makes a difference. It makes it. It, it is. But yeah, that's basically what you just described is how black people made progress in America over the last 400 years. It's little by little, mm. case by case, individual by individual. Sometimes you make a a, a, a huge leap. And sometimes you make a huge step backwards, but that, that's the, basically the, the, the black American experience, what you just described. Yeah. So, we're accustomed to this shit. Yeah. You know, I, I think that... And I you would, find your work in Japan when you do, because you do a lot of lectures, you do a lot of TV work as well these days. Have you found that you have made progress in explaining your position and explaining how it is better to communicate what the better way of communication is between Japanese people and... and, and I don't set my goals so high. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I set realistic goals. Yeah. And that helps a lot. Mm-hmm. I think I think the goal I set is... Um, I don't set it as... I used to be, if you reach one person, you did a good thing. You know, I used to set it that low. Mm-hmm. And I always reach that goal. Because I always reach at least one person. So, um, now it's a little higher than that, but not much higher. I don't expect... You know, you know. I don't. I'm not Martin Luther King or anything like that. I'm, I expect uh, when when the blackface thing took place at the beginning of the year, I I didn't know what to expect because I I didn't purposely do it. You know, I just did a few tweets, and you know, suddenly it was you know it was international spotlight. I didn't expect it. I didn't plan for it. This is not my agenda. You know it. You never know when it's going to happen, and then you know, then it happens. But the the amount of people who reached out to me, Japanese people who reached out to me and said, "This is you're so right," you know, and you know, this is so bad, and why are we still doing this shit? It it moved me. It, It it made me realize, okay, I'm not alone. You know, and not just not just. You know, there's a lot of foreigners who are against me, too. They're like, shut the hell up, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You're rocking the boat. Why yeah. are you rocking the boat? Yeah. You know, so... But I don't care about them. Mm-hmm. I'm focusing on, on, on Japanese people. And I, w- I was really moved by the the, the the positive response. I mean, there's a lot of negative response. I would say it was 70-30, mm-hmm. positive, negative. But that's 30%. And it's, mil- it's reached millions of people. So that's a lot. Of that's a big chunk, mm-hmm. so I was like, well, okay. And as a result of that, you know, other media outlets have been contacting me saying, we know, we want to run a GBS, contacting me, saying, you know, we want you to come to our station, do a presentation, do a seminar for our staff to, to, to train us so that we can, you know, not do this kind of bullshit in the future. I'm like, so that's I've been seeing positive results, and and I think that, um. I, I I don't expect things to change overnight, but I think that the more people are, I think the majority of people who are, are on the fence is because they don't, they're not aware of the issue. It's like you said earlier, you said, um, you know, uh, maybe, um, 
Japan has imported some of his racial racialized thinking from the West. It's true, but this importation started a long time ago. This started with Perry. Perry came here and did a minstrel show. Mm-hmm. That's when blackface came in. It's 1850-something. So when, when Commodore Perry came here and performed in blackface, Japanese have been doing it ever since. I, I had no idea that he did yeah. that. Right. Wow. So yeah. this was the, the initial infestation, yeah. the initial you know, contamination yeah. uh, of Japanese. Uh, you know. yeah. So it, it's not new. It's not, but Japanese don't know that. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it was my responsibility to say, listen, you know, I understand you saying that it's just a monomane and we don't have any. Re- I'm saying, you've been doing this monomane ever since Commodore Perry taught you that it was okay. Right. Right. You know, and he was a racist. Mm-hmm. So you learned your monomane of mm-hmm. black people from a racist and you've been doing it ever since. Did you, you know, did you somehow magically remove all his racist DNA? Mm-hmm. I don't think you did. Mm-hmm. Maybe you think you did because in your heart you don't hate black mm-hmm. people, but from the outside perspective mm-hmm. and from the world's perspective, they're not going to see mm-hmm. that. They're going to see that Japanese are either so ignorant that they think that this is okay mm-hmm. or they're racist. Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, or they're going to be a bunch of, you know, white supremacists supporting you. I mean, yeah. Either way, you're going to be fucked, yeah. you know, in, yeah. in the perspective of the world. So yeah. just consider that yeah. if next time you want to do blackface. This is part of my presentation when I when I talk to them. It's like, it's not that I think it's racist. I actually don't think it's racist. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a racist thing to, to do blackface mm-hmm. automatically. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily racist, you know, but the world is not going to cut you any slack because you don't think you're racist. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, you don't want you don't want that stigma attached, that stigmata attached to your country. Well, I think that's that's one thing that I I, I think is very um, important to emphasize is that you and a lot of the, the your work that I've read and having talked to you today, um, you have a lot of love for Japan. And maybe maybe that hasn't come across in what we've been talking about today. But obviously, both of us have settled here for many years, and we have a lot of love for Japan, and that's why a lot of these issues are very painful to us because we want to we want to be a part of this country. We live here, and we want people to understand our perspective and to teach them. And what I've respected about your work is that you've not taken a pedantic tone in your writing. You've always been very clear to explain. In very, very, um, almost in, 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 in for an audience who maybe cannot understand, in very, very clear terms, why this is maybe inappropriate or this is wrong, and uh, this until, is a different way to think about it. Until recently, I haven't been able to reach a Japanese audience exclusively. I've been writing for Japan Times mm-hmm. in English. A good twenty, twenty-five percent of the Japan Times readership is mm-hmm. Japanese yeah. people who speak and read English, mm-hmm. and maybe they are telling their non-English speaking mm. friends and colleagues about these articles maybe not but now I'm writing for Japanese um, media so I'm reaching Japanese people directly I'm, I'm not writing in Japanese I'm writing in English and it's being translated and I'm kind of you know take um, overseeing the the, the the translation and make sure that is as accurate as possible but uh now I'm I've got a platform where I can mm-hmm. speak directly Japanese and uh it's been a little um eye opening to you know, speaking directly to Japanese people. I realized that this country's a lot more right wing than I thought. It is, mm-hmm. you know. But I also realized that this com- this country is also 
much more open to I to to stories um, related to the black experience because they're not getting them. I mean, real stories, real life stories, not you know Bobby and Bob Sapp acting like you know doing their thing on television. You know, real people do you know real life stories mm-hmm. here. They're not getting them. Mm-hmm. They're not getting enough lifestyle. Mm-hmm of black people fully vested in Japan. They're not getting these stories, you know. So last week, last month, for example, I did a story about a black woman married to a Japanese man and her how they met in back in New York and the child tribulations and, and the happiness and joys that they've, you know, gone through mm-hmm. living in Japan. These are the type of stories they're not getting. Mm-hmm. The Japanese media, for some reason, you know, they'd rather do the fish in the water, fish out of water stories than they would do the you know, um, happy assimilated family story. Yeah, they're not doing those stories right, enough. Right. And I'm gonna—that's my thing. I'm gonna make that my thing. You know, the fish in the water story. Because <laughs> there's a lot of fish in the water. I'm a fish in the water here in Japan. You know, as much as I have to deal with the, the Iwakan and the other foolishness here, I, like you said, I love this place. Mm-hmm. You know, I love this country. And I don't want to go back to the States. And if I do go back to the States, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to have a place in the States and mm-hmm. a place here because yeah. this is home now. You know, this is home now. And I, I feel... I feel like it's partially my responsibility to help my extended Japanese family to to achieve the goals they set out for themselves, which is to become more internationalized and more globalized. I mean, you got Olympics coming up, right? The whole world is going to be coming here. You have a hell of a lot of resources here in the country that can help you deal with the problems that are going to be that you're going to have to face as you make as you prepare for this this huge event. You know, I mean, there's no reason why the Japanese should come out. For the opening ceremony of the Olympics in blackface, there's no reason that should happen. With all these black people here who can tell you that's a bad idea, why the fuck is that happening? But why the fuck is that a possibility that you might say, "Oh, we want to show our respect and love for black culture and black people by doing blackface in the fucking opening ceremony of the, of the Olympics"? How is that a possibility in a country? You, you know, what I'm I feel like it's it's my responsibility. It's my fault if that happens. Because I haven't said anything. I haven't made it clear to them. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed. <laughs> that does not happen because, because it would just be so horrifying. And, 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 and they really yeah. think that everybody's going to say, well, that's just a monomane. Yeah. No! Yeah. Nobody yeah. don't care about your monomane. That's just yeah. beyond insensitive. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's just... I would. I feel like if that happened, that would be my fault. Mm. I would blame myself because it means that I haven't worked hard enough mm. to make it clear that not that blackface is bad or wrong, but that you have resources at your fingertips. People that if if you're not if you're not if you're not absolutely certain that what you're doing is is kosher, why aren't you talking to the people who are here who love mm-hmm. this country? You know why isn't it clear to them that they can that we are here to help them? Mm-hmm. If they, there are many, I mean, I look at like the Pakun and some of these other people who are in. You know they're in. Yeah. You know, 
Why? What are they telling them? You know, I, I watched this program on Abema TV, and Pakun is talking about blackface. I can see he gets it. Mm-hmm. He fully gets it. Why is problematic? And what can be done to stop mm-hmm. it? So I'm like, why did it happen in the first place? If you're in the media, mm-hmm. you know, and this shit has been a. It's not like it just started. It's been going since 1850. Yeah. Why is it continue? You've been in the media 20 years because it's not a priority to him. So I had to make it a priority. Yeah. You know. Well, clearly it's yeah. More, more, yeah, yeah, more I mean, what, why is whiteface continu- continuing? You know, yeah. why is A&A still doing stupid friggin' whiteface ads? And, yeah. you know, why why is yeah. the stuff continuing if, yeah. if he's in there? I think that a lot of the people, a lot of the foreigners who have been successful in the media here, they are the don't rock the boat kind of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're not doing Japan a favor. If you love this country, rock the fucking boat. <laughs> you're doing great work, man. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Um, Sorry, I'll make sure. Talk too much. No, man, it's fantastic. Um, I will get all the links up where we can find all your various work. And um, let's do it again. Great chat with you, brother. My pleasure.
strings eternal on a girl. 